I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, and welcome back to this new episode of Undercurrents. It's great to have you with us. This week, it's just me for an extensive deep dive into how far-right politicians are attempting to reshape education systems in Europe. I'm joined today by two academics with direct experience of this process, both having worked at the Central European University, a private institute originally based in Budapest, but which had to relocate to Vienna following a crackdown by the Hungarian government under Viktor Orban. Dorit Gever is Professor of Sociology and Social Anthropology and the founding Dean of Undergraduate Studies at the Central European University. Felipe Santos is a postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Sociology at City University of London, who did his PhD at the Central European University. Together, Dorit and Felipe co-authored an article in the latest issue of the Chatham House Journal, International Affairs, titled Europe's Far-Right Educational Projects and Their Vision for the International Order. The article is part of a special issue on deglobalization and the international order, which looks at the challenges the international system is facing in a wide range of areas, including trade, migration, global health and great power competition. The whole issue is free to access until the end of November, and you should definitely give it a read. The link is in the show notes. In the meantime, though, on to the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so it's great to be joined today by Dorit Gaver and Felipe Gonzalez Santos. Thanks both of you for joining me today. So your article in the new issue of International Affairs is titled Europe's Far-Right Educational Projects and Their Vision for the International Order. Fascinating look at what the likes of Viktor Orban in Hungary and Marion Marichal in France are developing in terms of new ideas about international relations conveyed through the founding of educational institutions. Before we talk about the educational aspect, I'd love to go first into the kind of ideological background of these political movements. So, Dorit, maybe if I can come to you first, a big idea in your article that these politicians and these movements are dealing with is is this idea of globalism. I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about how that idea developed historically and, and what it means, really. What we do in this article is that we trace the rise of what we call globalist liberalism. And we do it especially through following the political project and the ideologies being developed by, especially in Hungary, by Viktor Orban in a world of intellectuals that surround him. And Marion Maréchal in France, who is engaged in in a parallel project that has a lot of convergences. And actually, we see increasing convergences that she's developing in France and Spain. That's what we emphasize in this article, but which we see proliferating in Europe. What do we mean by globalist liberalism? Well, we take the concept of globalism from the work of historian Quinn Slobodian, who published, uh, in my view, an extremely good book called The Globalists, where he traces the development of what he calls globalist ideology, but also institution building, which he argues, I think, very compellingly is one of the most important institutional and ideology building projects of the 20th and now 21st century. 
essentially the people and the ideas that formed global institutions like the World Trade Organization, the International Monetary Fund, and even the ideological and institutional basis of the European Union, of the, of the original concept of a, a free trade zone within Europe. And what he argues in this book is that the source of globalism is in the end of empire at the end of the First World War in Central Europe. Uh, economic thinkers, I mean, probably the best known of these would be uh, Hayek, among others, had a vision of a world order uh, that was sourced in this ideal of the Habsburg Empire, where, in their view, the Habsburg Empire was a borderless space, a very large space of free trade that spanned across nations. Uh, and they lamented after the end of the First World War, the emergence of nationalist independence uh, movements that created borders and limited the possibility of free trade between nation states. And so taking with them this dream of, uh, or maybe this fantasy, this nostalgia for the imperial economic order and political order, they sought to, to bring this project into a new form in the 20th century, and worked assiduously. I mean, it's, it's also a really extraordinary story of emigres who, you know, who end up from Central Europe in the United States. They become foundational figures in certain economics programs in the United States and, and found what then becomes known as the, the Washington Consensus. And with it, really, their, their dream comes true. It's a, it's a really exceptional story of visionaries who who managed to transform the world order through the creation of these incredibly powerful institutions like the WTO and the IMF. And so that's what he defines as globalism. So globalism is the belief in free trade, very strong belief in free trade, and a real skepticism around state borders, so barriers to free trade. And also he argues that there's a certain quasi-authoritarian edge to it right from the beginning, that they were never fans of democracy, that democratic institutions to them seemed like messy interventionist political forms that would get in the way of the ideal of, of free trade, but they accepted it as a pragmatic compromise. So what we argue by examining this new emergence of what we call globalist liberalism is that one shouldn't consider a figure like Marion Maréchal or Viktor Orban as being anti-globalization. That actually, if you really look closely at their ideological project, and in the case of Hungary, you can also really look at national economic policy, that they are true believers in free trade, that they accept certain aspects of the globalist order as it was founded in the 20, 20th century, but, the, but we also see divergences, and these divergences are especially focused on a belief in an even more authoritarian form of governance and a very strong embrace of nationalism. So whereas the foundational globalists were very skeptical of nationalism, here we say that the globalist liberals, on the contrary, really embrace nationalism. And furthermore, argue that free trade is best conducted between nations, between proud nations, and that they also are deeply critical, very strongly critical of another aspect of the globalist order, which has been, in their view, the excessive imposition of liberal cultural values that were 
advanced through liberal institutions. And so they very much criticize the EU. I mean, even certain aspects of the World Trade Organization, certainly of the World Bank. And so, so they're much more seriously engaged with ideas of national sovereignty and also cultural sovereignty than had preoccupied the foundational globalists. And so it's this particular package, this merger between an embrace of liberalism in the sense of free trade, but on, but on the other side, a criticism of cultural liberalism that together form what we call globalist liberalism. That's really, really fascinating. Thank you for setting out that whole picture there. I wonder whether you could tell us a bit about how, maybe particularly in Hungary, this vision, this reimagining of globalism is being manifested in the actual policies of the state. So what we see in terms of policies, the Orban government, for example, is very keen on making the Hungarian economy as attractive as possible for foreign investors. So it has one of the lowest corporate taxes in Europe. We see also that there's they create a lot of incentives for investment, particularly in the auto manufacturing industry. So there's very heavy interventions, for example, in ensuring that wages in the auto industry remain uh, attra- attractive to foreign investors, especially for car manufacturing companies from uh, Germany, but also there are other projects like a battery development uh, project just outside of Budapest. So one, I mean, one notorious example that became very politicized within Hungary was a very quick law that was passed in the Hungarian parliament, which became known by the trade unionists as, as the, the slave law essentially forced workers in car manufacturing to work overtime with very little uh, rights to resist working overtime. And also employers are not obliged to pay for this overtime work for as much as two years after completion of the overtime work. So also creating conditions where essentially where workers have fewer labor rights compared to neighbors and that it is made as a very attractive investment site for foreign companies. That's, you know, that's just one example among others. It is not a government which is trying to, for example, uh, seriously exit the European Union. I mean, in fact, the Orban government has never expressed interest in exiting the European Union. The um, controversies that it's had with Brussels, the controversies that it's had with the European Parliament and with the European Commission have to do over issues that have to do around investment transparency. Uh, I mean, this is also something I think that Felipe can can talk about, but it's not about limiting the movement of peoples within Europe, and it's certainly not about limiting the movement of goods and trade within Europe. Yeah, I think that in addition to what Dorit said, a very clear example of how uh, the policies of the Hungarian government represent this globalist liberal vision is the negotiations that took place during the European Union uh, recovery package and the decisions of where the funds would go and the conditionality associated with uh, those funds. And studies have shown that over 60% of Hungarian GDP growth is dependent on EU funds. So these funds are very important for the Hungarian government and the Hungarian society. 
Uh, and Orban was very keen on having those negotiations, was fighting for having a very expansive uh, EU recovery package, uh, and also for Hungary receiving an important percentage of those. However, he was also ready to block that package if it had conditionality associated with rule of law, issues of democracy, and also they were framing it within the conception of cultural changes in Hungary. So they were associating all those changes in institutional institutions and this conditionality also with wider migration programs, less support for families, and so on. Um, and it arrived to a moment in which it seemed like the negotiations of the EU recovery package would fail because Hungary and Poland were not ready to accept the conditionality related to democratic polity that was associated with the EU funds. So I think that this is a very good example in which we see that Orban's government is definitely pro-European and they understand that they benefit immensely from the European Union. They're also happy to depend on international markets for their funding, but what they're not ready for is to accept those cultural and institutional changes that many times they come associated with these components of globalization. And, and just to carry on on that cultural point, something that comes out in your article very clearly is, is that there is a religious angle to this vision as well. Felipe, I don't know if you could tell us a bit more about that. So something very interesting that we found while we were doing the research for the, for the paper was the emphasis that not only the Orban's government, but also the French is a, the Spanish is a place on Christianity and the defense of Christian cultural values, which they see under threat. So basically, one of the leading intellectuals of, of the French right, which is Mathieu Baumier, uh, he speaks about this issue of what he calls the libertarian liberals, whom they want to see a world without limits, right? And they, he speaks about all these absence of limits, but he focused on these cultural values. And the problems that they see is that they see that globalization has brought no limits to the kind of cultures that are allowed into Europe, the kind of families that are take, like that are allowed to be formed in Europe, and also the role of the women. And this is heavily associated with their exclusionary vision of Christianity. So the problems that they, they see with globalization is that it's bringing to Europe, which for them has very strong cultural roots, a very important Christian history, people that are not part of that history, right? Like through migration, like especially from Muslim countries, but also from, from other countries. And they see that these new cultures or new people that are arriving into Europe do not only put into threat their exclusionary vision of Christianity as a European culture of civilization, but also of the kind of traditional Christian families that they would like to, to push for. Also, uh, demography is very important for them and demographic policies because they want to promote policies that would encourage Christian white families in Europe to uh, have more children, for example. So this understanding that they have of, of Christianity, which not, is not only based on this enlightened idea of uh, Christian inter internationalism that also had a very important influence in Europe, but a much more restrictive and exclusionary idea of Christianity, which plays very clear and strong limits on who's allowed to be part of society. What we also observed was that they are also criticizing head-on the established Christian Democrat parties of Europe. 
both in their national contexts and also at the European level. And as we know, the Christian democratic parties have been central. They have really have been pillars of the European Union project. The most powerful political party group has been the European People's Party. That has been the most important political group in the European Union. So we see it also as a strategic move of trying to shift the balance of forces away from what they argue is a watered-down version of Christian democracy that has lost its moral and religious moorings, has become excessively secularized, excessively beholden to the powers of political correctness and and the pragmatics of compromise, and that rather these two political figures, these political movements represented by Orban and Marichal, they claim that now they are the true carriers of Christian democracy and that they're really the ones who are reviving the original moral claims that were foundational to these political parties and their origins to Christian democracy, but got got lost along the way. So we see it also as a, a kind of a strategic political move, not purely an ideological move. One of the big developments that you focus on in in your article primarily is in the sector of higher education and the founding of various institutions, educational institutions that in some way support this political vision. I wonder if you could tell us about those, particularly the National University of Public Service in Hungary and the Institut de Sciences Sociales, Economiques et Politiques in France. So these institutions that uh, have been developed by, by the far right, both in, in Hungary, in France, and in Spain, they show a very clear commitment to advancing the kind of vision of the global liberal order that we've been discussing, and also they're highly connected to these parties on the far on, on the far right, like both fields in Hungary, like a wider spectrum of, of their vibe in France, because it's not only the, the uh, national rally, but also their other parties there, and also to Fox in, in Spain. And even though these institutions present themselves as academic, willing to seek knowledge and education and detached from politics, this is very much not the case, right? And this is very clear from when Mario Melanchal presented ISEP in the United States, where she tried to present ISEP as an educational institution, but she also argued that now it was the moment for the new right, basically to uh, fight for the new hegemony, right? So she was arguing that they were the places for advancing the ideas of the new right were not only institutions, but they were also culture, the media, educational projects, and so on. And we also see that these institutions, particularly in in Hungary and Spain, they work a bit as a revolving door between the political parties on the right and the institutions, right? So, for example, in the case of Spain, we have that now ESEP is is, uh, hiring new lecturers. And like one, one of their new hires, one of the most important ones, is Alejo Vidal Cuadras, who is a former vice president of the European Parliament. He was a very important member of the Christian Democrats, Partido Popular in, in Spain. But then he left the party to found Vox, so the, the new far-right party in, in Spain. 
And I think that this represents very well this attempt of these institutions and these parties to occupy what is the whole spectrum of their vibe from the Christian Democrats, even like a sort of like mild social democracy that is present in, in some Christian democratic parties towards the far right through a radicalization of values which emphasize this idea of Christianity. And then I'll speak then about the Hungarian university. It's called, I'm going to call it NUPS, which stands for the National University of Public Service, Ludovica. The Ludovica component is uh, named after the campus where it's situated in Budapest, uh, where it was endowed by a member of the Austro-Hungarian, well, she was an Austrian Habsburg who had endowed this building to a previous institution uh, in the 19th century. And the new University of Public Service was founded in 2012 and then eventually moved to this campus. And it actually is an agglomeration of some older institutions, some very long-standing institutions, uh, but was really elevated to a very high status uh, directly by the Orban government. Just to put the chronology in motion, Orban was re-elected in 2010 and one of the first indications, he, he very quickly upon re-election indicated that he was interested in doing a review of Hungarian higher education and developing a new university of public service so that the Hungarian people could have a new form of, or, or a new type of leadership that was really formed by this school that was supposed to advance nationalist and Christian values. And indeed, the university was then founded in 2012 and has had a very elevated status in the Hungarian higher education world uh, landscape. One thing I should emphasize is that I am a professor at Central European University. Uh, Philippe and I met at Central European University. That's where we began as colleagues. So we, we met in Budapest when the university was still in Budapest. And at that time, we were one university among others in Hungary. In 2017, uh, the Hungarian parliament passed a law which effectively made it illegal for Central European University to continue its operations in Budapest. And the university then found itself, my university, CEU, found itself in the really unprecedented situation within the European Union of being forced to leave one country and we moved then to Austria, to Vienna. So when Lexi was passed in 2017, there was a lot of discourse about it being an anti-George Soros maneuver, which because George Soros was the uh, founder of the Central European University. And there is truth to that. But I think also what's important to emphasize in relation to our paper was that it was part of a much larger strategy on the part of the Orban government to remake the higher education landscape. And within Hungary, as part of this bigger project that uh, Philippa has been talking about, about trans uh, transforming values from beginning to end. So from early education right up to the highest levels of education. And the National University of Public Service was a very important plank in this project. So in addition to getting rid, rid of CEU, the other major maneuver was creation of this university. And so the university is very ambitious. It has the full force of the state behind it. We do note in our paper that this is a, an important difference between the ESEP project 
led by Melio Melichal in France and Spain, because that's a fledgling organization. They're struggling. They're struggling financially. They don't have the same level of accreditation. They certainly don't have the same level of funding. NOOPS has the full force and support of the state behind it. And so NOOPS is also, I would say, more of a bona fide university. It is accredited at all levels of education. It has everything that makes it look like a European, a proper European university. It has Erasmus agreements, EU funds, exchange agreements, journals, scholars with PhDs. But it has crafted itself as, as a university that's designed to advance uh, nationalist values, service to the nation above all else, at the same time as it advances a pro-capitalist, uh, pro-free trade agenda. So we, we really see in NOOPS this double edge of an institution that, uh, that has both of these sides of the globalist liberal ideology that we identify. It is, on the surface, looks like less of a political project than ESEP for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, because it has more of the bona fide university credentials. And I should also say, in, in fairness, it doesn't mean that all the faculty and all the professors who teach there are card-carrying globalist liberals. To a certain degree, there is just the limits of what is now an option for scholars in Hungary because of the remaking of the higher education landscape. NOOPS is a university that has funding. You can get jobs there. You can teach. Uh, not everybody is fully behind the bigger project, but it's certainly an institution that has been designed to lead this globalist liberal project. And then one more thing I'll say is that it's also very clear in its ambitions to transform the European Union with, from within, because one of its newer programs is to train young people with a scholarship, so with full funding, so it's, it's a, a program where students don't have to pay fees, to prepare them for the entrance examinations for working in the European Union to have an EU career. And it's called the Europe of Nations program. So it's, it's exactly this idea that Europe needs to be made up of proud nations and that they're uh, developing an educational platform, which in theory is open to applicants from outside of Hungary. So applicants more broadly from Europe who can take this preparatory program to enter into the EU. But the education is also laden with the, the ideological values that the, the university represents. You mentioned there that uh, obviously NOOPS has got the backing of the state in a, in a way that ESEP doesn't have in, in France and Spain. But I wondered also whether you know how far it has popular support and, and maybe how far you know Orban's wider vision has popular support within Hungary. Obviously, Orban was elected, as you say, in 2010. But what do we know about how far this is a kind of popular movement among the electorate? I, I think there's a distinction between what Orban represents broadly versus Noops specifically. In terms of Noops specifically, it is a university. And so it's only meaningful to actors for whom universities matter. So I'm not sure I would say that it is a university that in itself has very wide support because I don't think universities tend to be the object of popular mobilization. But generally, the extent of the support for Orban in Hungary 
is extensive, but it's in decline. This is indicative because of the uh, there's currently, at least for the first time in years, what is a potentially viable opposition candidate in Hungary in the form of the uh, current Budapest mayor, who is, at least in terms of polls, it's the first time that there is, for the national elections, for upcoming national elections in the spring, uh, it's the first time in a decade, uh, over a decade, that there is a real uh, opposition candidate uh, who might have legs. So the success of the Orban project has been extensive. I think there is no question that Orban and the Fidesz party really established uh, a very strong hegemony, by which I mean a very strong level of support from a wide range of social classes and social groups in Hungary. But it is on it is on the decline. One other thing I'll add is that what Noops has succeeded in doing is merging conservatism with elements of far-right ideology. That's where I see a level of support, which is very interesting, I would say, as a political sociologist, but also I think is really politically significant. And is something that a figure like Marion Maréchal is aiming for, that's her ambition in France, but she hasn't succeeded in doing that in the way that Orban has. And that's why Orban is admired by figures like her. That's why he's admired throughout Europe by far-right figures, because he, he is a political leader who has managed to do this merger between groups uh, that could have gone the route of a more centrist Christian democratic conservatism, but actually who whom he has successfully moved rightwards. So I wouldn't say that Noops necessarily represents the success of a populist movement. I think it represents the success of this political merger and ideological merger between the far right and conservatism. That's really helpful. Thank you, Dori. Felipe, did you have anything you wanted to add, thinking maybe about France and Spain? Well, I think that something very interesting that Orban has managed to to do uh, that has uh, definitely helped him to gather the, the, the important support that his project has in Hungary is that he's always managed somehow to have some grouping that is more radical than him, right? At the beginning, this was Jovic, when Fides was still closer to uh, the roots of Christian democracy, and Jovic appeared as a far-right alternative to those positions, but as Fides had more to their fight, and Jovic has used that opportunity to present themselves as a more of a Christian democratic conservative party and move towards the center, other actors have appeared, right? And now, for example, what is called uh, our homeland movement, which is a radical right flank, has started organizing protests around Hungary in issues related to the Roma population, migration, the border, etc. which is interesting because uh, no matter how radical Orban's positions are and how much more to the fight the Fidesz project moves, there is always something that is more extreme, which helps to the whole rhetoric of the government of presenting themselves as the common sense of the people, the will of the Hungarian nation, something that is not as extreme in that regard. And it is interesting also now that 
we have recently seen that Mario Marincial has been in Budapest and has been discussing about expanding ISEP, not only in Madrid and Lyon, but also in Budapest, which could also be that equivalent of a more radicalized institution creating culture and political knowledge that then presents, no matter what statements are made from the side of the National University Public Service, as something that is not as extreme. In this case, we see that there are also attempts to do the same in Spain and in France, from both the parts of the institutions as the part and the parties. Now, in Spain, we have seen also that other of the uh, very important hires of of ISEP for this year has been Juan Carlos Girauta, who was one of the main leaders of the Liberal Party in Spain, Ciudadanos, who then, when the party decided to move towards a more social liberal uh, position and also being open to having agreements with the leftist government in Spain, also to be open to vote for other candidates, this this, uh, figure uh, left the party. And now he has joined ISEP as well. So we're also seeing that even in ISEP, there is an attempt to present the institution as something that is much more transversal than just the radical fight but it's something that moves from the liberal positions in the country to more conservative positions represented by people who were dis, uh, disenchanted with the Christian Democratic Party, Partido Popular, who are now part of Vox, and also to the, to the radical right. And we should not forget that Vox is basically a splinter party of the Christian Democratic Partido Popular. So this has been a really, really fascinating look at, at how these dynamics are playing out in, in Hungary, France and Spain. But just as we finish, I wanted to ask whether you think this kind of tactic of pursuing a particular kind of ideological vision through the education system, do you think we're going to see that play out in, in other countries? Are we already seeing that play out in other countries? Is this a trend that's likely to expand. I mean, I'm sat here thinking about what's going on in in the UK at the moment, and the university sector there is coming under a lot of strain, particularly around these sort of cultural issues around race and around liberal values and the perception that university curricula are overly left-leaning. So I wonder whether that's the sort of hallmarks that maybe this trend may be expanding over that direction. But what are your thoughts on the sort of future of these sorts of activities? I absolutely think that this is a, a movement a trend, but we can even call it a movement, I think, that is that we'll see well beyond Hungary, and Hungary could even serve as a model. I think what you describe in the UK is one example. France has also had uh, recent controversies when French President Emmanuel Macron likewise had entered into the fray of university curricular politics by making very strong criticism against the study of race and post-colonialism and even arguing that it was uh, it was un-French, that it was uh, that, that these defied French values of universalism, solidarity, not and, and and so this I think we can we're really starting to see the proliferation of this discourse even in governments that don't entirely represent the extent and even ideological complexity of the Orban government. We see this I mean, another front, which has been a very prominent front, is the attack on gender studies. 
the proliferation of this term gender ideology where uh, Hungary was uh, was very quick as being a country which deregistered gender studies. You cannot have a degree. There are no more degrees conferred in Hungary that are gender studies. What happened was a curricular change where these programs were transformed into family studies. Uh, this is not the only place where it's happening. It's, help, it's happened also elsewhere in Europe. So I think in some countries, it's more targeted against very specific departments and scholars. In terms of the bigger institutional changes, I would say there that I, I think one of the differences is public universities versus private universities. I don't think it's a coincidence that for Maréchal, I mean, I, I did say that Emmanuel Macron has entered the fray of this kind of university politics, but he's he doesn't have, I mean, he's, you know, he's always said that he's a little bit of right and a little bit of left. He's a little bit of liberal and he's a little bit of right wing. There aren't signs yet that he intends to, I think, to such a degree, transform higher education. So Marichal has had no choice but to, to go through the private sector to develop a private university. I think that's an important difference where we see versus uh, the Orban regime is in power and they could affect these changes very extensively across the public university system. And I think the influence is therefore much deeper and much more extensive. But there are similar trends in Poland. So in some, I, I do think this is the beginning of a larger movement and Orban is seen as a, as a guiding light in this process. So I think that the issue of academic freedom is now becoming more important than ever, because even though universities have always been in a space in which there has always been tension between the development of academic knowledge, education, and so on, and efforts from political parties and different political factions to influence what is taught there and the kind of dynamics that are happening there, um, we should also take into account that universities and the university years are moments and spaces of very important political socialization. It is very often that they are the first political experiences of many people of organizing, uh, being exposed to political ideas, debates, and so on, take place when they join universities. So, I mean, there there are spaces in which political parties and political entrepreneurs, uh, they have a lot of of interest because they they have a very big pool of potential recruits who are going to be highly educated. Uh, So they're going to be ready to join the uh, ranks of the party uh, and to be leading in in those spaces. And in Spain, this is something that has been very common somehow. And there are certain universities that have been traditionally associated to different parties. So, for example, the University King Juan Carlos is traditionally associated to the Christian Democratic Party. Many of the Christian Democratic figures that are now, they have received degrees from there. The University Carlos III has traditionally been associated with the Socialist Party, and also many of the ranks that are now in the Socialist Party have been educating that university, and some of the professors, they also have uh, been part of the party or have advised the government when the uh, Socialist Party have been into power. So this is something that has, like, universities have always been in a space for political struggle. The question is now is, why now? this radical right has placed so much emphasis on these spaces. Whereas in the past, 
it was not a relevant political actor in these spaces. And this is happening in two ways, right? So this is happening with all these fights against the university curriculum that Dorit was speaking about, with gender ideology or taking over certain university departments. And it's also happening by the radical right trying to establish these new institutes in which they can train their own figures without the struggles for space, for having a certain power or hegemony there. And they're also able to select the kind of people that they want in. So I think that just to recap, academic autonomy and uh, freedom, I think that has never been more important because like, there are like many different forces that are trying to take over uh, the like, capacity of universities to educate their students. But also we are seeing a development in which the radical right is also trying to occupy some of those spaces in traditional universities and create new spaces in their own institutions. Sorry, Gabe and Felipe Santos, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. Thanks for sticking with us until the end. I just thought I'd take this opportunity just to tell you about a few upcoming projects that we've been working on here at Chatham House, which sort of depart a bit from our kind of regular Undercurrents programming. So we've got a couple of mini-series coming up over the next few months. We'll probably have three in total before Christmas. And they're going to be looking at some really interesting different topics that we've not really covered very much on the podcast before. So the first is looking at the subject of peace building, and it draws on a project that Chatham House has been working on with a whole range of other organisations called Smart Peace, which is basically trying to find new ways to advance peace in conflict-ridden societies. And they've been working in particular in the Central African Republic, Northern Nigeria and Myanmar to explore different avenues for bringing local communities more into these peacemaking processes. So I sat down with the leaders of the hubs in the various different countries and we spoke a bit about the political contexts and also what activities the project has actually been pursuing in those places, ranging from activities to engage young people more into these processes, to better understand the dynamics between different ethnic groups within society, to reintegrate people who have been involved in the fighting itself and a whole range of other dynamics that are really, really fascinating. So there will be three episodes dropping in this feed in a few weeks, which we'll be looking at that. So watch out for those. Looking a bit further ahead, we'll also have a mini series thinking about politics in the Middle East and North Africa, particularly given the time that has elapsed now since the Arab uprisings, what was termed the Arab Spring, and thinking about basically what legacies those movements have had in politics even up to today. And that's a collaboration between Undercurrents and our Middle East and North Africa programme. And the director of the programme, Lina Khatib, interviews four different people who have been involved in some way, either as activists or politicians, in the politics of the region. So that'll be coming up soon. And then further on, we'll be having a deep dive back into a topic that we have covered on Undercurrents before, which is this whole idea of tech governance, the efforts that are being made by the international community to regulate cyberspace and to make it safe for citizens and users 
of the internet. And that's a collaboration that Chatham House has been working on with Microsoft alongside other partners. So watch out for those three series. I hope you enjoy them. We will, of course, be doing our normal episodes alongside it. We'll be covering a whole range of topics from climate change to racial justice to the legacies of empire and also into areas such as the international economy and domestic politics in China. So there's a whole range of cool topics coming up. I hope you stick with us. If you think that your friends or family would enjoy this, please do share it with them. It's a great way for us to reach new people. Also, please rate us or leave us a review in whichever podcast app you're using. Again, for discoverability, it just is completely transformative and we really appreciate it. If you've got any ideas about topics that you'd like us to cover on the podcast, please do get in touch with me. My email is bhorton at chathamhouse.org. And I'm always open to new ideas and pictures from our listeners. Thank you very much for joining us today and we'll be back with you soon. Goodbye. <laughs>